1 Peter 2. We're going to be in verse 18, and we're, I want to give uh, kids, y'all are staying here today because it's fifth Sunday. All right, kids. Jackson, you excited? You get to hear me this morning. He goes, sure. <laughs> Jackson, you're going to love it, man. You ready? Okay, all right, he's ready. We're going to talk about a difficult subject this morning and one that maybe um, you have not experienced and hopefully none of us in our lifetime will experience the underlying reality of what we're looking at. But we will see some application for us because all of us at some point in time have had one of those bosses. Have you ever had one of those bosses? Where you're living your faith and there's some injustice that comes to you because of your faith. Uh, They're attacking you and... Maybe you don't get a promotion or a raise or whatever the case may be or a certain job because of your faith. And so there'll be some application today, but we're going to look at, and by way of introduction, I'll share this with you, that in the Roman world, um, slavery was rampant. It was just a normal course of things. And so as Rome worked their way in their ever-expanding empire through military conquest, what they would do immediately is that the people that they conquered, they would make them be slaves. It has been said that in the first century alone with Rome, there's an estimated 60 million people throughout the Roman Empire were slaves. It's a staggering thing, and it was throughout the whole empire. Some have even said that half the population were slaves to the other half, of the population during that time. This dominated the Roman Empire, and it is vile for slavery to exist in any age, at any time, in any kind of form, in any kind of way, for a human being to own another human being and to think that they are some kind of master. But this is the reality of the first century. And it was into this reality that some people became Believers, But let me give you a little bit of background on some of those who were slaves in the Roman Empire. Many of the slaves had been former governor, government workers where they lived. Some of them were doctors or they were lawyers. They were teachers. Some were military men that were brought into the Roman army. Um, some had professions um, where they now took on a new role as a slave and as a servant um, of the Roman citizens. Some were actually more highly educated than the ones who had become their masters. Um, Some actually could uh, earn a little bit of money in some of the things that they did. Um, They could not marry, but they could cohabitate. But if they had children, those children born were just like a goat or a sheep. Um, They didn't belong to the parents. They belonged to the master and to the owner. Rome love, as you know, build elaborate things. And the best way to build elaborate things was to have a slave force to do all the work because there's no way a Roman citizen throughout history, when you look at that, would want to do any of that kind of work. And so as they conquered lands and they built things, they had the slaves um, do all of that. Slaves literally had no rights. If there were any grievances, which there were many done by the master to the slave, there was no place for a slave to go and say, unfair, this is not right. Um, And so there was... Not much that they could do. Many of the slaves, because of the, um, just the inhumane situation and the place where they live, many of them lived short-lived lives after Rome came in and conquered. Some of them lived in horrible conditions. But for a rare group of people, some of them became 
because of the relationship, because of who they were, or maybe because of the master, they became almost a part of the family, but that was a rare occasion. But regardless of the role or the place where they lived, they lived completely under the control of the master. And with that in mind, here's what I want to present to you this morning when we come to the text. It is into that kind of setting, master, controlling, slavery, conquering, horrible living condition, that Christianity came into that and it created an unbelievable dynamic throughout the kingdom. And so Paul addresses it. Peter addresses it because within the Roman world, as Christianity was being established in the first century, slaves were coming to faith in Christ. Let me kind of give you a scenario as to why they address this. And, and let, me just, let me just say this. Some people have falsely said the New Testament advocates slavery, and I don't think that that's what, what they're doing here. There was a reality that Peter and Paul and the apostles, they were not going to overthrow slavery. They, they didn't have the power, they did not have the influence, but this was just a reality that was going to continue to remain in the Roman world. And so what Christians who were slaves had to understand is, how do I now live as somebody who's free on the inside, but my outside life is under a demanding taskmaster who literally physically owns me. The slaves were just as cattle back in the Roman world. They were branded. And so if you were branded and you fled and you went away from your master and you were somewhere and you're just roaming around the streets, the Roman government and power there would say, what are you doing? Who are you? And they were branded. I mean, it was an incredibly vile thing. And so the New Testament does not advocate and affirm slavery. But what the New Testament does through Paul and Peter is, is to address believers to say, you're living under a very oppressive government, a horrible government. You've been made a slave. You're living in horrible conditions. Your children belong to the master. But now you're a believer, and you have to live in this situation. So how do you live in this situation? Here's a dynamic that took place in the early church. Let's say a slave becomes a believer redeemed, alive to Christ, and they join a church. They go home and work for the master, and they live such an exemplary life, and we've been talking about it in these weeks, that we would live such lives of integrity that would influence the lost world, and that the lost world would come to know faith. And let's say a year after the slave becomes a believer, the master becomes a believer, and the master and the slave are now going to the same church. The slave has been a teacher in the church and now the master comes and sits in a class where the slave is the spiritual authority in the church and it created an unbelievable dynamic within the first century. And so Peter and Paul address this issue to say, listen, um, it's horrible what's happened for you, but you're a believer and I've got to tell you, how, how do you live in an unjust setting like that, And so that is the reason 1 Peter 2, 18 through 21 comes to us is that he is addressing believers who are slaves and how do they live their Christianity in a very difficult, unjust environment. Christianity came to people in the first century and it had this message of hope. Can you imagine being a slave and you've been branded and you're living under incredible, difficult circumstances and Peter and Paul come into town and say, uh, Jesus died for you, there's a future for you, there's a hope for you, you can be forgiven, you have value because the Son of God died for you. 
And, and so slaves embrace this. As a matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 writes to the Corinthians and the indication there is likely these were slaves in Corinth as well. Let me just read it. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. <clears throat> Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Likely what Paul is addressing to Corinth is these were common people. They weren't kings, these were just common people, and likely they were slaves. And so Peter is going to address this reality. How do you live your life in an unjust setting that is terrible? Now again, I don't want to equate a boss this morning that you and I have. I don't have one. Well, I, I don't have a, I guess I have a boss. Y'all are my boss, but, but I don't have a, and y'all are, y'all, y'all are pretty nice to me, except for Carl's, except for Carl sometimes, you know, but uh, he gives me a hard time. Um, but, but I, so I don't want to equate maybe if you're a teacher, you've got a mean principal and they don't like your faith with slavery. But you and I can learn some things in regard to how do we deal with unjust settings and unjust situations in regard to this. Let's look at, let's look at the text now. For First Peter chapter 2, this is the third piece of living your life in such a way that would silence those who would attack your faith. First Peter two eighteen. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now look at 21. For to this you have been called. We'll talk about that later. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in His steps. All right, let's walk through this and learn some things. And at the end today, I'm going to give you a biblical example of someone in Scripture in the Old Testament who dealt with an incredibly unjust situation. God's hand was upon this man. And yet there was a leader in the land who was unjust to him and attacked him and sought his life. But first of all, this morning, let's look at what is the life of the servant of God? What is the life of the servant of God? So Peter writes these words. He says, servants, be subject to your masters. The word servants in the Greek means household servants. These were slaves who worked in the homes of people in Rome. And as I said earlier, this is one of the most degrading kinds of servitude. These slaves had to be at the beck and call of their master. They had to clean the house. They had to care for the master. Um, They had to appease the woman of the house. They had to cook the meals. They had to carry out any kind of whim and any kind of idea and thought that the master wanted for them. Often they were very distasteful and degrading duties. And for most of them, life in the Roman Empire was hard. They were treated as animals, and many of them were branded, as I said earlier, to indicate that they were owned by someone, and some of those brands were unique. And the fact that Peter says, household slaves, you are a believer, here's what I am saying to you, you be subject to your masters. You're serving in the home of a Gentile master, but you have come 
to know Jesus. This is how you are to live. And again, I want to remind us, if there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire and the gospel is spreading forth from the east all the way to the west, many slaves are becoming believers. The slaves, though, that were not believers were a very bitter group within the Roman Empire. You can imagine, you have this underlying group living in the Roman Empire who once had had freedom, but Rome had come in and captured the land. Once they were, some of them were doctors, they were educators, they were government, wor- government workers, and now they are forced to do incredibly demeaning tasks. They have been branded and they are not their own anymore. They look like they just belong to the Roman Empire and literally, physically, they did. And some of the tasks that they were had to do in such difficult circumstances in regard to food, living conditions, there was disease, um, there was all kinds of immorality, all kinds of things that took place in that. And so here's what happened, though. So in the midst of that terrible situation, there were people who came to know faith, who came to know Jesus, and now their whole outlook of relating to an unjust master, an unjust owner, took on a whole different meaning. And, and Peter's call to them was this, your call is to live a life in such a way that influences this one who owns you, this one who has branded you, and you would live your life in such a way to influence them that they would come to know faith. But again, so you've got this, you've got these believers being called to live faithful lives, but then you've got this bitter group of slaves who do not want to be that way anymore. And so there's this great fear throughout the Roman Empire that the slaves ever had a conference together. They could rise up and there would be a revolt. And there was all kinds of issues in that kind of setting. And so they were a hardened, restless, careless group of people who once had had freedom and longed for it again. And they hated their Roman master. Christians, you and I, in big picture things, we are called a slave to Christ in the New Testament. He is our master. We are to follow Jesus. He is our Lord. He's the one. But in this setting, it is really difficult and def- different for these believers. You and I have been bought with Je- by Jesus' blood, by Christ's life. Let me remind us what Paul said. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So if we're a believer, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Jesus now becomes our Lord, our leader. And so he says, glorify God in your body. So here's Peter. He's writing to these people. They've experienced persecution just for being a believer. And now they've been forced to flee. And they've landed in these five places in, that we see in 1 Peter 1.1. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And they, they fled because of persecution. Now they've landed in this place and they still don't have freedom They're still a slave. And Peter writes to them to say this. Listen, the call upon your life is in this incredibly difficult situation. You've been persecuted as a believer. You are still a slave. You have fled and you've landed in this place and you're still a slave. But here's what I want to do. Listen, here's the deal. You have a higher calling on your life than your freedom. And the highest calling upon your life is, is in a terrible situation. You live for the glory of God and you trust the situation completely with God. And so he tells them, servants, household slaves, you be subject to your master. This word subject, your translation may say submissive. It's a good word. It just means this, to take a position or place 
in or under someone in an orderly manner. These believers living in, the, in this situation were to never lie, they were never cheat, they were never to steal, they were never to murder, they were never to do anything that would transgress the moral truth of God for the purpose of pleasing their master. They, were, they, couldn't, they wouldn't please the master to do those kinds of things, but even some of the tasks that were really difficult, Peter instructs them, you've got to submit to this because this is the reality of the world in which you live. Why? Why did they have to do that? You and I, I don't know about you, but I, I hate that our nation's history is marred with slavery. It's horrible. It's horrible that our European leaders who came over to this country practiced that, and it was okay. I was born in 1965, and I still cannot fathom that somebody like Javon this morning or, um, could not drink from the same water fountain that I could drink from. This aspect of slavery and this mindset of one race looking down on another race or, or whatever, the ca- whatever the case may be, this is not biblical, it is not right, it is vile, it is evil. God has uniquely made every single one of us. And we are precious in His sight. But above our race, if we know Jesus, there's a call upon our lives. And the call upon our lives is to be the kind of men and women that in unjust, unjust situations, I have trouble this week. I've said injustice, unjust, and so if I mess that up this, this morning, just please forgive me. Um, in very unjust situations, there's a greater call upon our lives, and that call is that we live for Jesus no matter what. The martyrs did that, did they not? They wouldn't bow, and so they gave their lives because they continued to preach. But the call upon our lives, regardless of race, regardless of economic background, is that we are never to look at people in a demeaning way. But if we live in a situation where the demeaning comes because we're believers, how in the world do you deal with that? Well, here's what Peter and Paul both say. You live for the glory of God in such a way that you submit even to a leader that's unjust. Even in the situation, you don't demand your rights, you don't do that, you just embrace the reality because you've been called to suffer and you submit. But why? Two reasons. One is this. The best way for these Christians to proclaim and prove Christ's worth for them was to live an exemplary, godly life before their master and secondly the deepest blessings always come when we do what when we obey that's when the deepest blessings come so peter writes he says servants household servants household slaves you be subject to your masters here's why because the situation of the world is you are under that master It doesn't mean it's right it's wrong but here's the reality you do it and you live in such a way that, that says to them, Christ means everything to you. And that's why you're the hardest working household servant in the neighborhood. Because you've been transformed by Jesus. You live your life in such a way that communicates to everybody around you, you've been transformed by Jesus. And I want to tell you this, if you do that, you may still get in, <clears throat> injustice coming to you from your master. 
But God sees and He knows what's happening, and God rewards that kind of life. So how do you do that? How do you, how do, you do that? So here He is. Into the setting, Christianity comes. People owned other people. I've been redeemed by Jesus. I've come. I'm a part of the church. I'm free on the inside, but my outside life has been branded, and I'm owned by somebody else. So how in the world do I respect, give honor to my master? So Peter tells them, listen, household servants, you be subject, you be submissive to your masters, and you do so with all respect, whether they are good and gentle or also to the ones that are unjust. Let's look at this word. Second thing, let's look at, here's how you do it, the posture and the attitude of the servant. If you've got a boss that hates your Christianity and gives you a hard time, or you've got a co-worker that maybe has got some seniority over you and doesn't like your faith and speaks against your faith and puts you down how do you respond here's how you respond you respond with respect you respond with respect not only to those who are good <coughs> and gentle but also to those who are unjust this word with all respect in the greek word is phobos it's where we get our word phobia which means what fear what kind of fear? So s- servants, be subject to your masters with all respect in fear. Who are the servants to fear? Well, already twice in First Peter, he's talked about we are to fear God. So he's telling them, you give respect to your masters because you fear God and you trust the situation with God. So in one seventeen of First Peter and 2.17, he talks about conduct yourselves with fear. You fear God. So the idea is that you fear God. Paul writing to the household slaves in the church of Ephesus said these words. Bond servants, same word. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. As you would Christ. So in this unjust situation... You live in such a way that there's a master over you who's exercising injustice. The situation is unjust. And so Paul tells them, you with a sincere heart, you submit. You do what they tell you to, to tell them that Christ has transformed you, that he's the most satisfying thing, greater than your freedom. Jesus is the most satisfying thing. And you do so in such a way that you do so like you're doing it to Jesus. You live that way. It's, think about this for me. Are you, are you getting this? I mean, this is a, an unbelievable difficult situation. And here Peter speaks into the situation and says, listen, you're in Paul does. You're called to live greater than demanding your rights. You live to the glory of God. Here's what it is. <clears throat> I've told you the story the last few weeks about how I came to know Jesus. I had a friend, Todd, who was a believer deeply loved him and I thought he was the strangest person in the world when I first met him and I thought he was strange until the night that I came to know Jesus and I thought he was like one of the most cool persons that I ever did but he bothered me all the time he bothered me all the time and yet I would be around him and you know why he bothered me his life brought something called conviction to my life and you may have if you came to know the Lord later in life you kind of know this that there's somebody, probably a believer, that was in your life, and they just bugged you. 
Like, man, why do they think that way? Why do they talk that way? What's the deal about them? And, and your life was under conviction knowing that something wasn't right. And here's what was happening in the Roman world. Believers who were slaves, or slaves who had become believers, were living in these unjust situations, and injustice was being done to them. And it was being done to them because their master was living under conviction. That slave that used to harshly speak back to the master now just did whatever the master said, and it bugged the master. It was almost like the master was like, can we go back to the old way where you just talk back to me? Because the conviction upon the master was so strong because of the integrity of the slave that it brought conviction upon their heart. And this is what happens. Many masters came to know faith because of the unique faith of the ones who were slaves that they owned. That is an unbelievable thing. I tried to think about this week, thinking about all over the Christian empire in the first century. Not Christian empire, but the Roman empire where Christianity was being established. Knowing that slaves were living such lives of integrity and godliness and passion that their masters were literally coming to know Jesus in faith. It's an incredible testimony about who they are. So how do you do this? So Peter says, okay, slaves, you be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good and gentle. If they treat you right, you'll be respectful. But you live this way also to those who are unjust. And you do so in such a way as if you're doing it to the Lord. You're living this. And so, again, if you've got a difficult work environment where, where in the break room, the policies on trips, um, all the men go out, I've heard this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to deal with these things. That would be a temptation for me. But I know that, that, that you go on these trips and, and, and believers... Everybody in the company goes to certain places and does certain things and the believer can't go because of conviction of some of the things and participate in that. And there's ridicule that comes to that believer in that work environment. And people talk about it and they make fun of the believer because of the stance that they have. So, so how do you live in an environment that way that honors God? Well, you still speak respectful. You still live in a life of integrity even in the midst of the injustice that is coming towards you. And so we are respectful not only to the good and gentle, but also to those who are unjust. And here's why further. Look at the next thing. Look at 2.19. For this, this is the motive and the reward of the servant. For this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing to live this way. This word, this thing, in the Greek, has meaning. It's not just this thing. It means this. It means this, that regardless of what they are like, you are to live in such a way that is respectful to your master, to your boss, to this person who has authority over you, that hates your Christianity, that's being unjust to you. You didn't get the raise because of your faith. How do you respond? You do this. This is a gracious thing when once someone suffers sorrows while enduring something called injustice. 
So the motive and the reward is this. This word grace here, gracious thing in the Greek means this. It is an action. It means an action that is beyond what is ordinary or expected. So here's the deal. Watch this. Household slaves who've come to know Jesus, you're free on the inside. Your outside life is not free. You're branded. You belong to someone. You've got a difficult master who's under conviction. They hate your faith. They've poured more injustice now on, even though you don't complain anymore. You don't yell back at them. You just do what they tell, it, tell you. And now it seems like they're madder than they were before, and they treat you worse before. What do you do? Well, here's what you do. You live in such a way where you do this. You live respectful. You've got this posture and this attitude of a servant that says this, I'm going to be respectful, not just to, to the good and the gentle, but I'm going to be respectful and I'm going to live in such a way that honors my master even though he is unjust. And the reason I do this is because this is a gracious thing. This word gracious thing means this. It means you will get the favor of God. And I don't know of anything in our lives that we would want more than the favor of God to fall upon our lives. The favor of God fell upon Jesus' life. You know why it did? Because everywhere Jesus went... His whole life, what did he do? He spoke what the Father told him. He did what the Father did, and he copied that. He embraced it. He did it, and what happened? He was incredibly blessed. The Father spoke over him a number of times at his baptism, at the transfiguration. He said, this is my son. I am pleased with him. And so there is a reward for submission in difficult situations And it's the word that we get grace, that we get more of God's grace when we deal with situations like this. And the love of Jesus to live toward people who are being unjust toward us, to live and to love the way Jesus did is beyond what's normal because here's what's normal. You're not treating me that way. I'm not putting up with that boss. And so I'm going to talk behind your back. And I'm going to get in certain groups and I'm going to say this, but a believer is to do this, not to demand their rights. A believer is to say, I'm going to trust this with God. Because that's what Jesus did. At the very end, how many followers did Jesus have the day that he was hanging on a cross? There weren't many people hanging around, were they? His closest ones had fled except for one guy named John who was at the cross. So Jesus lived in incredible injustice. In a few weeks, we will see how he responded to that. But he becomes our model. He becomes the model for us. And there's a reward for the situation. Listen to the reality of Jesus' life. Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, Jesus was despised and we esteemed him not. Acts 4.11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He fully submitted to the unjust nature of man's hearts, and he went all the way to the cross to bear our sin. And he got God's pleasure because he submitted to the injustice that came from the evil of man's heart and we get what comes to Jesus when we live that way in unjust situations where we just say 
I'm not going to demand my rights. God, I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to trust you. You do this. And when you and I bear up with the injustice from man because of our love for him, we are most like Jesus in that moment. And in that choice to live this way, here's what we get. We get the favor of God. We get the favor of God. I had some coaches in college that hated me because I was a youth minister. My sophomore year became a youth minister, a real tiny church in Amarillo, and some of my coaches hated that. My head coach was a, was a Mormon, and uh, though he kind of liked me, he kind of hated me too. And I've never been cussed at like that in my life, and it seemed like he just loved cussing at the Christian. And I, I mean, vile, vile things. And I always thought it came because I was hoping that my life brought conviction upon him and he didn't know what to do with it. And then I just had to sometimes, he just would get right in my face mask and he would spit. And if you've ever been that close to somebody who's mad, uh, they spit as they yell and they scream. And that just would come through my face mask. It would hit me in my face and I just took it. And it was hard. Because if you know me, my kids can say this. I have a hard time in those moments not just saying something in the moment. God has given me something called sarcasm. Well, I shouldn't say God's given me that. <laughs> God's given me a personality <clears throat> where I can be sarcastic. I shouldn't charge that with God. Sorry, I didn't really mean that. So listen to this. Household servants who've been freed by Jesus, you be subject to your masters. You do so with all respect, not just to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You get the favor of God by doing that, you don't demand your rights. You just trust that God is going to make it right. And so how do you do that? This is what I had to do sometimes on the practice field. I had to, in that moment, as I'm just being yelled at and cussed at. I had to think about God in that moment. It was the only way I could hold my tongue. And this is what he says. He says, listen, what credit is it if, what credit is it if, we're, we're, we're going to get to that. I'm sorry. Hang on. I just got a little ahead of myself. So he says this, For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Here's the next thing that you and I need in difficult situations. We have to have a mindset of a servant. We have to be mindful of God. We've got to fill our mind with thoughts of God in that moment. The paramount duty of every believer is submission. To government authorities, we talked about a while ago. A couple weeks ago, we talked about do not give in to the passions of your flesh. So we yield to God so that we don't live like the world and give in to the passions. And sometimes it is a bitter pill to swallow to submit, is it not? Let's just be honest. Isn't it hard sometimes? It's just hard. You know why? Because our old nature demands independence. And then we Americans have rights that you ain't talking to me that way. I am not going to put up with that. And all of those things. And the only way to pull off that kind of submission that Peter and Paul are talking about is to set your mind on God. There's no way to get through a moment like that if your mind and your heart are not filled with God's 
word. We will choose to live by the flesh. We will choose to live by the spirit. Paul said it like this. Listen to this, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So when injustice comes, the flesh says, you talk back. You're sarcastic. You cuss back. You say something tacky back. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit, he says. Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death only thing that comes from that kind of response of, I don't like this, is death talk. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I can think back on some moments where I'm standing on West Texas State University practice field, and I'm just getting screamed at. And I'm setting my mind on God, saying, God, I'm just going to take this again. I'm going to take this again. And in that moment, I can think back of times I thought about this week that there was a peace that, that just came over me and I wasn't even really hearing the cussing anymore. Because when our mind and our heart is filled with the power and the presence of God's Word, then God's right there in that moment. And there's something that covers us and something that is with us. So the mindset of the servant is this. I'm going to fill my mind with the heart of God. Look at 2.19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And again, our great purpose in life is to be a testimony of who He is, a living proof that Christ transforms lives. And at times, our greatest influence comes when we are trusting and faithfully walking with Christ in the storms and the struggles of life. Jesus said it like this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But what do they do? They put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, in the same manner, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And what do they do? They don't glorify us. They glorify the Father who is in heaven. John four nineteen. Many Samaritans, Samaritan woman goes back after she meets Jesus at the well. She goes back into the town. Listen to what it says. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Acts four thirty three. They the testimony of the servant is to live in such a way that speaks of the glory of Jesus. Acts four thirty three. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And watch this. And great grace was upon them in the midst of persecution. In the midst of injustice. Second Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Or of me as his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now let me just deal with something for a moment. One of the most unique ways that we can stand out in our culture. Is not to be the kind who go around demanding our rights. By complaining, grumbling and fighting for self. If we do this, the loudness of our lives is a negative one and not one that speaks loud that God can transform and do something great in our lives. And so sometimes when we feel like we've been treated unjustly. There's a spirit inside of us that wants to rebel and stand up and cause us to pout, shout, rant, rave, insist our rights because we don't think we have been treated the way we are supposed to be treated. And in the midst of that, Paul speaks. Listen to this. This is Philippians 2, 14. 
oh, and these got on me this week. This, these have been three tough weeks if we really want to follow the Scripture. Last week's, follow the government. This week, injustice. How do you deal with injustice? Well, you give respect. Listen to what Paul says. Philippians 2.14. Do all things. How many things? All things without grumbling or disputing. Yeah, but I've got a master. I've got a boss who's this way. Well, you work in such a way to where you don't grumble and you don't dispute. Because if you do, you're going to be like everybody else who's just demanding their rights. You live in such a way, this. If you don't, listen, we said, do all things without grumbling and disputing, 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent. If you don't do that, here's what you'll look like. You will, your works, your life, your integrity will be blameless and innocent. Children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What does a crooked and twisted generation do? It demands its rights. It, do, it fights. It yells. It sits in. It pouts. It stands. It marches. It does all of that. And we are called as believers with all respect to submit to difficult situations and to trust it with God and to do so allows us, here's what he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we stand out as different because what does the world do? Go home today and turn the TV on. Somewhere in the world today, somebody is shouting and screaming about something. And believers are called to live differently, that our life shouts the glory of who he is. And then he says this, Paul does, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. All right, let's deal with one more thing here. He says this, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It's called consequences. If you sin and you do what's wrong, and your master gets upset with you and you're punished, okay, that's called consequences. But when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is gracious. Again, you get the favor in the sight of God. This is what it says. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This word, what credit is it? There's a suffering that you and I bring to ourselves because of our own actions and decisions that we make. And then there's a suffering that comes because of righteousness, because it just comes to us. There is nothing noble about being reprimanded for doing a job poorly. We are to be the kind of people who work in such a way that says Jesus has changed us. The suffering servant who endures a difficult situation because of their faith gets the favor of God, and when God looks at that, God is pleased with that, and it moves him. Now let's deal with this, and then I want to tell a story <clears throat> from the Old Testament. Watch this. Look at 21. The first phrase there is difficult. For to this you were called. Called to what? Suffer unjustly. Are you kidding me? Okay, everybody, are y'all with me? Look up here. I'm an American. So are you telling me that I'm called to suffer unjustly? Yeah, because you're a believer. And because King Jesus, who now you are, who bought you with a price, he was, he was 
treated this way. So guess what? The calling of your life is that you're going to be treated this way just like your master. As Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. If they treated me this way, guess what? They're going to treat you this way. This is the deal. So the calling on the servant's life is, guess what? Guess what? American Christians, we're going to be treated unjustly. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to shout and scream? Or are we just going to say, you shout and scream at me. You attack my faith. I trust Jesus. He's going to make this right. And sometimes we wonder, when are you going to make this right? He may not make it right until the judgment. But he's going to make it right. And so the calling upon our life is this. It's, listen, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would walk in his steps. And we're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. But the calling upon our life is this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Let me close with this. First Samuel chapter 16, 26, King Saul is the first king of Israel. And he's told to do something one day. He's, he's told to destroy this army, win this battle, and to kill everything. Kill all the animals, kill all the people. He captures some of the people and he keeps some of the animals. Samuel comes up and he goes, what is this that I hear? The bleeding of animals. And he said, well, yeah, you know, we, Saul says we kept some. And so Samuel says, Saul, God's rejected you. you you're, not, you're not king in his eyes anymore. You're king on the throne still, but you're not king in his eyes. He has rejected you. That's chapter 16. Also in chapter 16, after he's been rejected, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and they pray to all these brothers of Jesse in, and <clears throat> Samuel sees the tall, handsome one, like me, like Keith Grissom. You want to see handsome? It's like, like this right here, you know? So, so Samuel sees one of the brothers and says, oh, there's the king. And God says, no, don't look at his outward appearance. And so Samuel says to Jesse, hey, do you got any more sons? Yeah, there's a little shepherd boy out in the field. Well, can you bring him in? They bring him in. And God says, that's the one that I want to be king. So Samuel anoints David to be king. Well, Saul, from that moment on, that he'd been rejected, is tormented by de- demonic spirit. And it's so bad for him that they decide music will help him. And so they find David to come. And when Saul's being attacked, David would play his lyre. And it would calm Saul down. Chapter 17, David shows up on the battlefield and he kills this guy named Goliath. After they chase the Philistines, Saul goes, who's that who killed, who killed that? Oh, it's David. And David comes into the tent where Saul is. And David is holding Goliath's head still. That's pretty cool, isn't it? He's got his head. Well, a little bit later, this is what happens. After Goliath, David, again, David walks into that. And then in chapter 18, um, David went out. And whenever David went out, he was successful. It wasn't always the case with Saul. And so Saul set David over um, in leadership within the army to do a number of different things. 
And then one time, they were coming home from a battle in 1 Samuel 18. David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing the song. Can you imagine how Saul felt? This is what it says. They came out to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. They come out to meet King Saul, but this is the song they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Can you imagine how Saul felt? Well, he didn't like it. That's what it says in the text. And you know what happened was? Is that David continued to play the harp to calm Saul down when the demonic spirit came. And one time Saul got so angry, he picked up a spear inside the tent and tried to kill David with it twice. Threw a spear at David twice. All David was trying to do was help him. Well, there's a third time in 1 Samuel 19 where he tries to kill David again as he's playing music. A third time with a spear. And then David is forced to flee. Who's the anointed of God? Saul or David? David. Who's still king over Israel? Saul. Watch this. Injustice. You know those Psalms that we like to read? 30 to 40. Those were written when David was fleeing from Saul, living in caves out in the wilderness. He's the anointed of God to be king over Israel, but he's not. He's living in a cave. He's not sitting on a throne. And twice this happens. Listen to this. Let me just read it. First Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistine, he was told, Behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men to go get David. So angry. <clears throat> this is funny. Sometimes the Bible is really funny. David and his men are hiding in a cave. Boys and girls, y'all with me? If you think it's kind of been boring so far, this is going to be awesome. Saul and David and his men are hiding in a cave, and Saul's like, man, i got to go do number two. And so he goes into a cave, and he's using the bathroom, and David and his men are like, oh my gosh, God has delivered Saul. You can kill him. Look at him. He's using the bathroom. And David says, no, I'm going to do it. So he goes up, and he cuts some of Saul's robe off and he keeps it for himself but he doesn't kill Saul and his men are like what are you doing Saul leaves walks out goes out further and listen to what it says David it says this is how pure David's heart was at this time and afterward David's heart that he had cut that um, struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe and he said to his men the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord the Lord's anointed to put up my hand against him seeing his the Lord's Lord's anointed so David persuaded his men with these words and he did not permit them to attack Saul and Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way and afterward David also arose and went out of the cave and he called after Saul my Lord the king listen to the words that he uses he doesn't say you tyrant chasing me and just man, unjust man, I don't like what you're doing. He says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face. Listen to this. Face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. That's not enough. Saul continues to freak out and chases David. And you get to two chapters later, <clears throat> David and another guy get to a place, and the army of Saul is encamped in a place. And with the firelight, they can look down the middle of the camp, and Saul is asleep in the middle of it, 
with men around him. There's a spear there stuck in the ground and water. And this guy that David's with says, go down there. Hey, let me go down there and let me take that spear by his head and let me just kill him. Let me kill Saul and this will all be done with. So Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy in your hand to this day. Now let me please pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not have to strike, strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, the Lord, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die. Again, here's what David's saying. I'm going to leave this with God. This is unjust. I'm, I've been anointed to be king, but I'm going to leave this with God. And so David took the spear. So they went down into camp. They took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No one saw it or knew it, nor did anybody awake. And while they were asleep, because of a deep sleep, the Lord had fallen upon them. And David went over to the other side and stood afar off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Nair, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner said, Who is this that calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord your king? For one of the people came in to destroy your king, the Lord, your Lord. And the thing you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, listen to what David says again. Somebody's still chasing him. It is my voice, my Lord, O king. He speaks what? Respect. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now let the Lord, let my Lord King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of my Lord. Beautiful picture of how you deal with that. That's what that looks like. That's what that looks like. Let me close with this thought. We're going to sing a song. <clears throat> Early in David's life, he dealt with the consequences of injustice from Saul. You know what he dealt with later on in his life? He dealt with the consequences of sinful decisions. His family was a mess because of what he did with Bathsheba. So David's life is marked with difficulty. Sometimes difficulty comes because of there's unjust people like Saul who hate us. And to bear up under that is a great thing. And sometimes there's consequences that come because we just were dumb. And we made some sinful decisions. And David's life was marked by those things. Even though in the midst of his bad decisions, God did things. God showed great favor early on in David's life because of the injustice and him being faithful to God. All right. This is one of those things that you never would talk about this unless you go verse by verse through the Bible. It's the only way you talk about subjects like this. And this is one we needed to hear today. Jackson, you all right, man? He stayed awake the whole sermon. Way to go, Jackson. All right. Let's pray.